Good morning. Uh, Christmas is behind us. How many of you are thankful that Christmas is behind us? There's a couple of us, which means 2016 is upon us. Uh, New Year's Eve is just a couple of days away. Uh, and if you, if you grew up like me, uh, you grew up with the tradition of not only Christmas traditions, but the, the tradition of making uh, New Year's resolutions. Uh, how many of you in here, by a show of hands, are planning on making a New Year's resolution for 2016? All right, several, several hands. Uh, by a show of hands, how many folks in here at some point in your life have made a New Year's resolution? There's a ton of hands with that one. Many of us learned our lesson uh, to never do it again. Um, I think it's a fascinating time to make a New Year's resolution. When you make a New Year's resolution, you're, in a sense, you're making a promise to yourself to achieve a certain goal. There's something about your life that you want to adjust, tweak, and fix. Uh, so heading into 2016, I did a little bit of research on 2015 uh, on some statistics uh, regarding New Year's resolutions. I wanted to share some of those with you. I thought they were interesting. Uh, these were some of the top New Year's resolutions for 2015. Uh, number one on the list was to lose weight. Uh, number two was to get organized. Number three, spend less and save more, in other words, to budget. Uh, a lot of folks wanted to quit smoking, and one of the top ten was to fall in love. I, I didn't know that was a goal you could make. I, I thought it was just something that happened. Uh, but apparently you can make that goal. Um, and so I, I kind of wanted to get into what's the, what are the stats for the actual, who makes resolutions? Uh, and this is what it said, is that 45% of people usually make a New Year's resolution. On top of that, about 17% of people infrequently make New Year's resolutions. So just depending on the year, maybe you need to save more money, maybe a little extra weight to lose. Maybe you're like really tired of being single and you're like, I really need to fall in love this year. Um, <laughs> But so roughly about 50% of people come the turn of the year make a New Year's resolution. And this was shocking, not shocking to me. Um, only about 8% of people are successful in achieving their New Year's resolutions. And so then I wanted to find out, so when do people fall off the bandwagon? You never make a resolution intending or planning on not making good on this promise you've made to yourself. Uh, this is what it said in these uh, stats. 25% of people don't make it past the first week. It's day three. I'm over this. I'm done. I'm out. 30% of people don't make it pa past the first two weeks. So we're above 50% of people two weeks in. Forget about it. 35% of people don't make it past the first month, and then the, the big fall off the bandwagon time is six months in. 54% of people don't make it past the first six months. I, I think this is so interesting because you never make a resolution and plan on not keeping it. Uh, you, you never make a resolution and plan on, I'm going to make this, but hopefully I break it. Like, uh, I'm going to make this and hopefully I don't follow through. If you've ever made a New Year's resolution, and most of us have in this room, there always comes this point in the year. For 25% of people, it happens in the first week, apparently. Uh, but there, there comes this point in the year in which you just don't, you don't feel like it. You don't feel like going to the gym. You don't feel like eating healthy. 
You don't feel like sticking to your budget. You don't feel like not smoking. You just got to get that next cigarette in, that next uh, patch of nicotine, right? Uh, there, there is this sense for us in which we always have the opportunity to be faithful to the promise, to be faithful to the resolution, to be faithful to our goals. But for most of us, in fact, for 92% of us, there's this point in which we just don't feel like it anymore. And if you've been around for a while, you know that as Americans, we can oftentimes be strongly governed by our feelings. Uh, In fact, the side of bed that we wake up on on any particular morning will determine how the rest of our day is. How our year is going will determine how we approach the next year. Uh, We're strongly governed by our feelings and we're given license to do so. Well, how does that make you feel? What do you think is right? what What do you think you should do? How do you feel about the situation? Um, and so it's interesting to be people that are oftentimes governed by our feelings, but sometimes even the more interesting thing is, how does this project onto our view of God? Is God the kind of God that is governed by his feelings? Is God the kind of God that's governed by his emotions? Uh, is, is God for us one day and not for us the next day? Is God in our corner one year and not in our corner the next year? Uh, does God have two sides to his bed? And depending on what, what side of the bed he wakes up on, that will determine if he's for us that day or not. And, and so we want to go to the text this morning, and, and we want to look at what does the text say about God and his faithfulness? His faithfulness to his promises, his faithfulness to his resolutions, uh, his faithfulness to his commitments to people. And if God is faithful, to what extent is he faithful and what is he faithful to? I think as followers of Jesus, as people who have committed our lives to following after him, this is an important question to begin to get to the bottom of. And so we're going to begin to run through the biblical arc, beginning in Genesis, Deuteronomy, the Psalms. We'll make it to the Gospels. And ultimately, this morning, we're going to make it to the table. This morning is a communion Sunday, and so the arc of our teaching will lead us here. But the table says something about God's faithfulness and God's commitment to us. And so we're going to begin this morning in Genesis chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, we're going to have it all on the screen. This is Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Uh, If you were to read the biblical text, you would find that in Genesis chapter 3, uh, the creation project spins out of control. Uh, God created a beautiful, uh, blessed world, but in Genesis chapter 3, because of rebellion in the garden, um, a curse enters the world. But, but God isn't content with uh, the curse staying. God wants to reverse this curse and, and to bless the world and to restore and to redeem it back to its original nature. And so Genesis chapter 12 verse 1 begins the reverse of this curse. It says, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, go from your people, go from your father's household to the land that I will show you. And then God makes his resolution. He makes his promise to Abram. He says, Abram, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. Uh, To bless him is in direct contrast to the curse that's currently on the earth. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse and watch this. And all of the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. In other words, the curse is going to be completely eradicated from the earth because of my resolution and my promise to bless you, and by blessing you, bless your family, and by blessing your family, bless all the families of the earth. Now, uh, promises are just promises. In modern day society, uh, we oftentimes have ceremonies that go along with promises. Uh, For instance, um, for those of you who've been engaged at at some point in your life, you make a promise to marry that person. Uh, But for some of you, it's three months, six months, nine months, a year later, you actually have a ceremony uh, to ratify that promise. Not only to make the promise to the individual, but to, to make this promise a public declaration to everyone involved that the two parties are going to make good on their promise. Um, In the first century, these promises were called covenants. And in order to understand the faithfulness of God, we have to understand the idea of a covenant. Now, in the first century, a a covenant was was an interesting idea. We We don't really see it at all. Well, we never see it in 21st century America. But the idea of a covenant was this. Uh, Chief A and Chief B, they they were chiefs of their tribes, and they were surrounded by a multitude of tribes. And because there was a multitude of tribes, they felt uh, vulnerable to attack. Uh, They felt vulnerable to violence. And so uh, Chief A from one tribe and Chief B from another tribe, they would come together and they would make an agreement. They would say, hey, if any of these multitude of tribes attacks us, let's make a pact Let's make an agreement. Let's make a promise that we will come to each other's aid. And so these, these two chiefs, would, they would shake hands. They'd say, this sounds like a great promise. Now let's make a covenant. And, and so down the road a week or two, uh, they would gather all of the tribes together. And the two chiefs would be in the center of the tribes, but they'd still kind of be at opposite ends of this circle that was made. And they would bring animals They would bring bulls and goats and heifers, and they would cut these animals in two, and the blood of the animals would kind of make an aisle way. And the two chiefs, they would would stand at opposite sides, and then they would walk to the middle, their feet drenched in blood, and as they made it to the center, they would shake hands. They would recite their pact or their agreement, and they would say, may it be done to me as it has been done to these animals, if I don't uphold my end of the bargain. In other words, unfaithfulness to this promise, unfaithfulness to this resolution was going to have a dire impact on the chief and his tribe. And so God makes this promise, this resolution to Abraham. And then in Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant that looks a lot like this to Abram. If you have your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. It says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your great reward. Abram would probably say, Really? Since Genesis chapter 12, scholars would say there's probably been a couple of decades in between. In Genesis chapter 12, God promises Abram descendants a child, and land. And upwards of 20 years later, Abram hasn't seen any of it. 
He hasn't seen a kid, and he hasn't even come close to taking possession of the land. And yet, 20 years later, God shows up and says, Abram, don't be afraid. I'm your shield, and I'm your great reward. And so Abraham being in the sense of, are you sure about that? Are you really going to do what you've promised me you're going to do? Abram says to him, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? What confidence do I have? What reassurance do I have since I remain childless? And the one who's going to inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, I don't have any kids. You haven't shown yourself faithful over the past 20 years. And Abram continued, you've given me no children, and so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to Abram. He says, Abram, this man, this surrogate child of yours will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. So God took Abram outside. He said, look up at the stars of the sky and begin to count them if you can even count them. They are so numerous. Then he said, such as these stars are, so shall your offspring be. He says, Abram believed God and he credited to him as righteousness. Uh, Abram also said to the Lord, Lord, there was another half of this promise or the Lord is speaking, he says, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the earth, the Chaldeans, to give you this land to take possession of it. This is part of the promise of Genesis chapter 3. And Abram says, I know you promised it to me, but how can I know for certain that I will gain possession of it? Twenty years later, I'm not even close. So the Lord said to Abram, bring me a heifer and bring me a goat. We're about to see that, that ancient ritual of covenant come into play here. Bring me a heifer, bring me a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So Abram knows what's about to happen. He he brings all of these to him. He cut them in two and arranged the halves on opposite sides of each other. But the birds, however, he did not cut in half. So we have this image of a covenant ceremony being set up. Uh, These covenant ceremonies, they were binding. They, they were everlasting. You, you couldn't break these kinds of covenants. And the text says that at this point, as Abram is waiting for the ceremony to take place, a darkness falls over the ceremony and Abram falls asleep. It's not exactly the time you want to fall asleep if you're ready to make a promise. But the text continues, there's a thick darkness. Abram is asleep at one side of the animals. The animals are cut in half, and there's an aisleway of blood in the middle. And verse 17 says, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed all the way through the pieces. Scholars would say these are are symbols for Yahweh. These are symbols for God. In a normal covenant ceremony, both of the parties would have met in the middle because both of the parties would have been responsible for upholding the covenant. But in in this scenario, Abram has fallen asleep and only Yahweh passes through, making a statement that Yahweh is going to hold himself responsible for the covenant and not Abram. Because Yahweh knows Abram won't be able to. 
But Yahweh wants to make an everlasting covenant, an everlasting pact in which only God will be held responsible. And so God passes between the two pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. More than a promise, they've gone through the ceremony together. And he says, to your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. For Abram, this covenant ceremony is going to be a constant reminder to him and to his descendants that that God will be faithful. God will do what he said he was going to do. In, In other words, God isn't going to be a slave to his whims, his emotions, or how he feels. But God has made a promise to be faithful. And so we fast forward to Deuteronomy. Uh, this, is, this is after the Exodus. Uh, the descendants of Abram have grown. Uh, they were once under the thumb of Pharaoh, but God has delivered them with Moses. And now Israel's out in the desert near the land. And Deuteronomy chapter 7 says this. It says, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than the other peoples. In fact, you are the fewest of all the peoples. Now, uh, this word affection is an interesting word. In the 21st century, when we think of affection, we think of hugs and kisses and intimacy. Uh, but this Jewish word here is the word hesed. Uh, now, hesed is, uh, when it's translated from Hebrew to English, there, there isn't a direct translation for us. So most translators oftentimes and mostly translate it as love, but love in the ancient world and love in the first century are much different than what we experience love as today. Uh, modern scholars today would say this word hesed, probably the better word to translate it as would be faithfulness. It was the idea of being bound to somebody, being ruggedly committed to somebody through the highs and lows, the ups and the downs. No matter what happens, you were going to be there. And so if we were to reread this passage with that in mind, it would say, the Lord did not choose to be faithful to you. The Lord did not bind himself to you. The Lord did not commit himself to you because you were more numerous than the other peoples. In fact, you were the least among the peoples. This morning, we're going to see that word hesed pop up over and over again. Covenant, faithfulness, covenant, faithfulness, covenant, commitment. He continues, but it was because the Lord loved you. Because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And then watch this again. Know therefore, if you're going to follow God, you have to know this. Know therefore the Lord your God is God and he is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love. Of Hesed, keeping his covenant of faithfulness, not just to you, but to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. This is an everlasting commitment, an everlasting covenant, an everlasting faithfulness. Later, David, the king of Israel, will reflect on the Hesed of God, on the faithfulness of God. Of God. And he says this in Psalm 
chapter 23, verse 6. He's speaking about the Lord. He says, Lord, surely your goodness and your love. In other words, surely your goodness and your faithfulness, your goodness and your commitment to me will follow me all the days of my life. Uh, This word for follow me all the days of my life, when we think of follow, we think about following passively. Uh, The way that you might walk through your house and, and your dog will just kind of passively follow you through the house. Or uh, if you're an older brother, you have a younger sibling, your younger sibling will just kind of passively follow you. Uh, but when David uses this terminology, uh, the idea of follow was the idea to hunt. The idea to chase down. Uh, hunters would use this term when they were out to catch game. And so for David, God's goodness and his faithfulness isn't going to passively follow him. But in this context, David is surrounded by enemies, but as much as the enemies of David surround him, it is God's faithfulness that will track David down to be good to him. And surely his goodness and faithfulness will always chase and track down David, and he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. For David, this was a very personal reality, but it was also a corporate reality. Uh, we go to a long psalm. This is Psalm chapter 136. We're not going to read it or we would be here all day. But it was a liturgy. And what would happen is uh, somebody would stand up front, most likely in the synagogue, and they would recite the deeds and the actions of Yahweh. And then the entire congregation would respond, his love endures forever. And this word love is the word hesed, his commitment. His faithfulness to his people will endure forever. So if you were to go to Psalm 136, and you can do this later or now, uh, the first nine verses are about the creation of the world. It speaks of, of Yahweh putting the stars and the sun in the sky, of Yahweh separating the waters. It, it recounts the Genesis narrative. In every single line, the congregation responds, his faithfulness endures forever. And then it speaks about the Exodus, this great event in which Israel was in slavery, but they are delivered by Yahweh with Moses being his representative. And they recount the events of the Exodus, and after every single line, Israel responds, his faithfulness endures forever. And then verses 17 to 26, they talk about Israel finally taking possession of the land. And so you have the descendants of Abram, and you have the land promised to Abram, and finally the promise comes to its fulfillment. It comes to pass, and after every single line, Israel responds, his faithfulness endures forever. Israel constantly had to remember the unending covenant, the everlasting faithfulness of Yahweh. Uh, and, and if you've ever been married and you've decided to um, say your vows again, uh, to, to reaffirm with each other in front of a small group of people your commitment to each other, it's not a new idea in the 21st century. In fact, in the Old Testament, they would do the same thing. We have this everlasting covenant to Abram in Genesis. And then in Jeremiah, Jeremiah talks about the renewal of this covenant, of the vows being made again to reestablish God's faithfulness to his people. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
New simply meaning the last one was great, this is going to be better, and it's simply the reestablishment of my character that I've already displayed to Israel. I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It's not going to be like the covenant I made with our ancestors, meaning Abram and his descendants, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they ended up breaking my covenant even though I was a husband to them. In other words, God had been faithful as he was anticipating. Israel had been unfaithful as he was anticipating. So God wants to renew these vows, if you will. He wants to make a new covenant. He says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And so Israel, after this prophecy, enters into a time of waiting of waiting on this covenant to be renewed. And so we fast forward to the life of Jesus. Jesus is towards the tail end of his ministry, and and he's sitting with his disciples in this room in the first century. And, And it's interesting what he says. Watch what he says in Matthew chapter 26. He says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had taken the bread uh, and he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take this and eat this. This is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And and when Jesus says, this is the blood of the new covenant, they would have thought, what? What is going on? You you see, for the disciples, they only understood covenant in terms of animal sacrifice. Bulls, goats, rams, heifers. It, It was those animals whose bodies were broken and whose blood was poured out to renew covenants. But here's Jesus, their teacher and their master, this miracle worker talking about a new covenant that will be made with Israel, but it won't be the body and the blood of bulls and goats. It will be his own body, his own blood poured out. And it is Jesus himself on the cross that is going to reestablish this new covenant of faithfulness for Israel. Uh, this would have been shocking to the disciples. And as you read the New Testament, you, you find all these spaces in which uh, his disciples and Paul reflect on this moment. This is what John says later in a letter that he writes to the churches. This is 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 16. He says, this is how we know what love is. This is how we know what real commitment is. This is how we know what real faithfulness is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. In the moment when Jesus didn't feel like doing it the most, Jesus was faithful. In the moment when Jesus didn't want to go to the cross the most, Jesus was 
faithful. And so for John, looking back at the cross, the cross is this constant reminder of the faithfulness of God. That God would go so far as to not just give animals again, but to give his only son. This is Paul. This, this blew Paul's mind. He says, so, so who can separate us from the love of Christ? Remember, for the Jewish mind, that love is faithfulness, it's commitment. Who can separate us from Christ's commitment to his people? Who can separate us from Christ being faithful to his people? Can trouble? Can hardship? Can persecution, can famine, can nakedness, can danger, can sword, can a bad year, can a bad decade, can a bad life up until this point, can any of this separate us from the faithfulness of Christ to his people? Paul says, no. It's impossible. In fact, in all of these things, in all of these bad situations, we are more then conquers through him who's faithful to us. Through him who is committed to us. To him who is always on our side and always in our corner. And and so Paul launches into this, this famous text. He says, for I'm convinced of this. I can't be moved. I've come to this reality. I know this to be a fact in the deepest parts of my being. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the faithfulness of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing, no year, no decade, no action, no misstep, no mistake. There's nothing that the people of God can do to separate us from his faithfulness towards us. This is part of the everlasting covenant that was made in Genesis chapter 12, which is renewed in Jesus on the cross. And so as a church, when we gather, we constantly remember that in the midst of our unfaithfulness, Jesus is faithful. This is the most amazing news in all of the world. This is how Paul says it to his protege, Timothy. Uh, Timothy is pastoring this church that Paul has handed to him. And, And he says this. He says, Timothy, you have to remember this. If we are faithless, and better translated, when we are faithless, God remains faithful. For he can't disown himself. God made sure Abram was asleep at at, at one end of the ceremony and Yahweh passed through all by himself. Yahweh holds himself accountable to be faithful to his people. And so as we go into 2016, a lot of us in here have had a difficult Christmas season. Many of us in this room may have had a difficult 2015 season. And I know some of us in this room have just had a difficult life in general. 
it seems like from, from the minute we were born, we, we were faced with trouble and with hardship and with persecution and with difficulty. But the encouragement to the church this morning is that God is faithful. And the sign, the historic marker of God's faithfulness is the cross. Not the body and the blood of bulls and goats that is broken and poured out, but it's the body of Christ and the blood of Christ poured out that reestablishes his covenant to his people to always be faithful to us. And so this morning, we're going to take communion. We'll pass out bread. We'll pass out the cup. And for now, for thousands of years, this practice in church history has been the practice of remembering Jesus on the cross. But not just Jesus on the cross, Jesus on the cross as a sign to the entire cosmos that God is faithful. He is faithful, He is faithful, He is faithful. In the midst of a difficult financial situation, God is faithful. In the midst of a difficult marriage, God is faithful. In the midst of our health failing, God is faithful. In the midst of our relationships with our kids and our parents and our friends being fractured, God is faithful. For us, this can be, it can be difficult to remember and to wrap our minds around this because oftentimes in life we've just seen unfaithfulness. We've seen people not making good on their promises, not making good on their guarantees, uh, not making good on their word to us. And so if we aren't careful, we just say, well, God is just like them. God has two sides to the bed as well. Yeah, maybe God's like that as well. God can be turned by his emotions and the way that he feels. But when we go to the text, we find that God is not a God that is moved by the whims of how he feels one way or the other, but God has made a binding commitment to his people, a binding covenant of faithfulness to always be for his people. What shall we say then? If God is for us, who in the entire cosmos could be against us? And so as we run headstrong into 2016, we run with the table in mind that going into 2016, God is for us. Church, God is for us. He's for our marriages. He's for our families. He's for our kids. He's for our parents. He's for us in, se- in seasons of singleness. He's for our jobs and our schools. Going into 2016, God is for us. And this is a great thing to remember. And so I would encourage you, uh, after we pray, the communion team is going to pass out communion. Hold on to your elements when you get them. And as Colby and the band lead us in worship, uh, I, I would encourage you to, what is that space in your life in which you really want to see the faithfulness of God show up? What is that space in your life in which you really want to see the kindness of God show up? 
What is that space in your life which you feel like you're surrounded, but you want God's goodness and his kindness to chase you down, to pursue you as a hunter pursues his game? What is that area? And as we worship, uh, let that image be in your mind. Let that resonate in your heart. And we'll come up and we'll close communion together. And going into 2016, we will invite the Spirit of God to be faithful to us in the same way that He's been faithful to His people for thousands of years and for the generations to come. Let's pray together. Yahweh, that's our desire this morning to catch a glimpse, to catch a revelation of your faithfulness, of your kindness, of your rugged commitment to your people. And so Holy Spirit, in these moments to come, would you do what only you can do? Would you move in such a way that it's your work and not ours? Would you bring to our mind those areas in our our families, our marriages, our schools, our workplaces, our homes, in which you want to show yourself faithful, in which you want to show yourself kind, in which you want to show yourself good. Holy Spirit, in these coming moments, you're invited. You are invited here to do what only you can do. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's worship together.